It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Dr. William Barker. Dr. Barker is uh, both the English professor at the University of King's College in Halifax and Emeritus Professor at Dalhousie in the Department of English. Um, he is an expert in early modern literature, and from 2003 to 2011, he was the president of the University of King's College. Um, he received his AB from Dartmouth College and his MA, BED, and PhD from the University of Toronto. And this coming fall in October 2021, he has a book, a book coming out, Erasmus of Rotterdam, The Spirit of a Scholar in the Renaissance uh, Lives series published by Reactian Books. So first of all, Dr. Barker, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'd like to have a conversation today um, about the, the crisis of leadership, which I'm certainly not the first person uh, to make this observation, but uh, we have a, a failure of leadership really in every sector of society. Um, politicians, and, and I'm not making a comment here about one person or one party, uh, but they're, they're less interested in true leadership and more interested in political theater. Uh, in business, CEOs are more interested in short-term profit than long-term stewardship. Uh, tech leaders have shown that they're certainly experts in ones and zeros, but really don't know anything about ethics or citizenship or free speech. Um, we're both educators in education. Uh, as, as Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the Canadian, has pointed out over the past few years, uh, elite universities are less interested in being educational leaders and more interested in preserving their exclusivity. Uh, and ecclesiastically, we certainly could point to the problem of failed leadership of the sex abuse scandal, uh, but we can point in general to clericalism, nepotism, and that most bishops are little more than managers and are not intellectual and spiritual giants. So there are countless problems in, in leadership today. One place I think that, that we, can, we can begin to fix this problem is uh, to turn to the 16th century, a text called The Education of a Christian Prince by Erasmus of Rotterdam. Uh, because I think it offers uh, a sort of corrective to many of these problems. And as I mentioned earlier, you have a book coming out this fall on Erasmus. So um, why don't we start, if, uh, if you could give us a biography uh, of Erasmus, who was he uh, and why was he and is he today uh, still important? Well, your description of the current state of leadership would be something that he almost sounds like it came out of one of his books. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, the more things change, <laughs> the less they change. Right. Um, and uh, so he's, uh, uh, I'll just give you a quick sort of outline of his life. He was, he was born in, in uh, Rotterdam in uh, 1466. Uh, his father was a priest. Uh, and um, he, they, the family moved to uh, 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 to Hauda, 
or Gouda, as some people call it, um, in, uh, when he was quite young, and he went to school there. And then later on, when he was, uh, he was uh, around 10 years old, his, his parents sent him off to, and actually went with his brother and, and his mother to Deventer, where he went to an excellent uh, school that had been of some standing uh, for quite a while. And uh, he studied uh, uh, classical literature. Um, also, it's really a kind of preparation for the priesthood, and uh, as most of the schools were at the time. And so um, uh, after he went to school there, he, uh, his parents uh, died when he was around 16. And uh, his relatives, the people kind of looking after him, whose care he was under, uh, convinced him to uh, go to a, uh, join a monastery. Uh, first of all, it's, as a, he went to Sertogenbosch, which is a little town where he was worked in a school there. And then he was talked to going into a monastery an Augustinian, as an Augustinian canon. And uh, that was a, a extremely difficult part of his life, as he was, as far as he was concerned. And then he uh, stayed there for a while, um, and then was hired by a bishop to come. And he was a very skilled Latin writer, very talented um, scholar. And so he was hired by Bishop of Cambrai to come and work with him, and um, work in his court. And that lasted for a couple of years. And then he went to Paris, uh, basically supported at the beginning by the, by the bishop, but uh, who dropped him after a while. And he went to a place called Collège de Montaigu, where he studied um, theology and was, in his own mind, was getting ready to do the doctorate. But because of his illegitimate status, it was actually quite difficult for him to move through the system because the son of a priest was considered to have a stain of some sort. Sure. And uh, uh, even though there were a lot of sons of priests at the time. And uh, uh, so he, he was not in an unusual situation, but it did retard his progress in formal education. So he never got the bachelor's degree or um, he finally got a doctorate. And I'll tell you about it in a minute. But uh, then he... Uh, tutored for a while, and he started tutoring uh, some students from England, and one of them uh, talked him into coming over to visit him there, and that was a big changing point for him, because he was basically a relatively unknown figure, uh, not of much interest to people, uh, how, except to his friends who could see that he was an exceptional uh, scholar and writer, and uh, when he got to England, he began to meet people like Thomas Moore, and uh, and uh, uh, people in the church there, uh, some of them who've been scholars, studied in Italy, and actually entered into a community. And it, I think it was the first community that he'd ever felt he really enjoyed participating in. Very learned people who could recognize in him his skills and learning. And one of them was uh, John Collett, who became uh, Dean of St. Paul's over towards more theological studies. And uh, Rasmus came back from England after about six months, and I believe that was a turning point in his life. So he's in his uh, mid-30s at that point, and really hadn't published much, and suddenly he, he, the fire was lit, and he, uh, he wrote a short book, a collection of proverbs, which doesn't sound like much of a project, uh, but they were needed for people in writing to know how to, uh, you know, express themselves better, and he uh, from there went to, uh, from that, uh, went on to write a book of, uh, of um, I guess, kind of spiritual direction called the Enchiridion, which was published in 1503. And he was beginning to be noticed quite quickly for his writings. And um, uh, at the same time, he was drawn towards, uh, more towards a study of the church fathers, especially Jerome, and towards uh, the actual text of the Bible. And what one of the things that really inspired him to do that was discovering a study that Lorenzo Valla, an Italian humanist, had made of the New Testament, comparing the Latin version with the Greek and discovering all kinds of anomalies and uh, errors in the Latin when read against the Greek. And um, that got him really on the go for the next while, working on the text of the New Testament, and which culminated 
1516 with the publication of uh, an edition of the what he called the Novum Instrumentum and later changed the name to the Novum in, uh, Testamentum. And, uh, and at the same time, he also published uh, uh, volumes of, of the letters of Jerome, who he was uh, extremely interested in as a theologian and as a humanist scholar, I guess, a precursor. And um, uh, by the, uh, around the period of doing the Bible, 1516, he became of great interest to people in the political realm. And so he was appointed a counselor to Charles V. Uh, Charles V had been born in uh, 1500, so he was only 16 years old. He wasn't Charles V quite yet. He became the emperor in uh, 1519. And so he, um, uh, but at that time, he wrote a, uh, this book, The Education of a Christian Prince, uh, specifically directed to Charles V. Beautifully written book in Latin language, which Charles V was, uh, they tried to teach it to him, but he never learned it. So, <laughs> uh, so in a way, he was a, uh, uh, I believe the book was really directed more towards the counselors of Charles V than to Charles V himself. And I think that also applies to other books about the same time, which were written. And I think we're going to talk about Machiavelli's The Prince, oh, yeah. which was sure. written about the same time. And these books were really, I think, written for a whole class of people who were there to provide guidance and um, uh, information and uh, who, who filled in on all the kind of bureaucratic needs of these larger countries, which are in formation. And... Um, uh, and they're the kind of people who you meet in Moore's Utopia uh, when he talks um, Hithliday and uh, talks about being in a and or talk about being in in a council and having to advise the monarch on whether or not to go to war or things like that and not being paid attention to. <laughs> and uh, um, so th this is really, I think, the group that he that Erasmus really connected with. And as he was growing up, he increasingly separated himself away from his family, from his, from his native language, uh, from his uh, place of origin, um, and, uh, and sort of began uh, uh, creating new relationship with other scholars. And it was a whole class of people that existed in Italy and in the, in the Northern countries in England and so on, who are really interested in Italian humanist uh, writing and in the discovery of the ancient, the texts of antiquity. And by texts of antiquity, I mean not just the, you know, Cicero and Plato and so on, but also of the church fathers and texts like that. And to create a kind of, uh, a kind of ethical world that would give them guidance in how to behave and so on. So the Enchiridion that Erasmus wrote earlier was really a combination of uh, uh, biblical and uh, ancient notions of ethical behavior. And Erasmus, um, uh, shortly after uh, the 1516 sort of period where he became quite famous and was made a counselor and wrote the Education of the Christian Prince, just after that is Luther and the rise of the Reformation and uh, the real problem of sorting out who was a real humanist who was a theologian, who was a grammarian, and so on. And Erasmus always claimed he was a grammarian first, a theologian second, and um, he was really interested in the textual nature of what people were looking at. And his big claim, and I think this is the thing that most interested me as a literature scholar is, is how through books we can attain access to things in the past, to the ancient world, uh, to the ethics of the ancient world, and then, in Erasmus's case, especially to the actual words that were spoken by Jesus in the New Testament, and also the words of Paul. But the words of Jesus were the especially important ones to him. And to see if those words can come to us as clearly and as transparently as possible through time. And by doing that, you do you do what the scholars were doing with the ancient texts, and that is trying to describe how people actually understood the language and what they, the words actually meant uh, at a certain time. And maybe there were words 
translated from the Greek that came into the Latin and it was a poor translation. And Erasmus got in a lot of trouble for this because people do get wedded to their favorite texts. And I know in, in the English world, you know, some people have never quite adjusted to away from the King James version of the Bible. <laughs> And uh, because that's the only Bible that's there. And, uh, and, and he was interested in, in a really scholarly examination of the relationship of the, of the Latin to the Greek and to how many evidence there was of prior linguistic thing to Aramaic and things like that. He knew nothing, he knew new Hebrew, no, he, he had no Hebrew. So he wasn't really, you know, he was a great scholar, but he was not the greatest scholar of his time in the sense that if a scholar really knows the three languages, and he taught at a college shortly after it called the Collegium Trilingue. It would be Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And he only had two of the three, but he was awfully good at the Latin and very good at the Greek. And so he pursued those and relied on others for the, for the Hebrew. So anyway, this Bible caught people quite by storm. And a lot of the claims that he made, the translations that he made, uh, were very... Um, they were disputed uh, all over the place. Uh, in Paris, he was uh, maligned uh, severely by people in the theological faculty there. At Louvain, where he lived for a while, he thought he was going there to be with friends. They turned out to be enemies. Uh, and uh, uh, there were attacks on him from Italy, from Spain. Um, and, um, and so he, he really spent the last part of his career um, uh, further investigating the ancient world of the church fathers, not necessarily the classical texts as much, and reworking his biblical commentary. So it went through a series of editions. Every few years, he'd come out with adjustments. And uh, uh, they were super controversial, some of the translations. And, uh, uh, and he, in the end, was... Um, uh, spent a lot of time answering his critics. And this is an interesting feature of him because a lot of people just ignored their critics. Like there was another writer at the same time, Lefebvre d'Etaples, who, who did stuff on the Pauline epistles. He did not, uh, uh, he, he never answered his critics. He just forged ahead. And, uh, but Erasmus always felt you should be able to explain what you've done. And uh, this is one of the real problems he ran into with Luther by having to answer Luther mm -hmm. in his work called the Diatribe uh, de Libro Arbitrio, the sort of diatribe, as he called it, which is, really means conversation on the liberated or free spirit. And, uh, and so he, uh, he was very interested in aspects of free will, and that's something we might want to talk about. I think it's quite important in relation to his notion of, of education and so on. Sure. And... Um, uh, so uh, the last sort of decade and a half of his life, he, he spent in Basel in Switzerland, very interestingly, uh, a non-feudal environment. So he brought he was brought up in feudal Burg Burgundy, Burgundian territories. He was in France. He went to Italy for a while, but then he ended up in Basel. And, and what he really liked, he preferred Basel, even though all the time he kept saying, oh, I think I want to move back to uh, Brabant in, in the Burgundian province that he came from, or I'd like to move to England, or I'd like to move to France, the wine is better there. <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, and yet he stayed in Basel. And then when the reform finally hit Basel in 1529, he left the city and went to Freiburg, which is just a short distance away in, in Breisgau in Germany. Uh, it was an imperial city and stayed there uh, for um, a short while. And then uh, moved back to Basel uh, to work on some of his texts, and that's where he died. And all was uh, working in close proximity, and in the end, living with uh, his printer, the printing family that he worked with, uh, Frobens in Basel. So that is, say, the long, short version. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, a couple of points uh, following up on that. So you'd mentioned that Charles V never really learned or read, or I don't know if you said he, he read it, but he never really learned the education of a Christian prince. Uh, why, why do you think that was? Did he just not find the, the question that, questions that Erasmus posed to be interesting or that he didn't need it? Or why, why did Charles not really care about this book? Charles was not a 
uh, receptive to the humanist learning. And he'd been, uh, he certainly had good teachers when he was younger, but he uh, definitely preferred hunting, uh, <laughs> dancing, right. music, and other activities to boring uh, over. He was, a, he was quite a diligent uh, um, in terms of uh, government and bureaucracy. I'm, I'm just in the midst of reading a very long biography of him by uh, Jeffrey Parker. Uh, highly recommended, and uh, uh, he really did not. Um, uh, he was not interested in that. He and, and and very oriented towards warfare, conflict, and so on. Sure. So this book really, uh, I think, it was definitely read by people, mm -hmm. as many of Erasmus's books were uh, in multiple multiple printings. Uh, at at one point, Erasmus uh, Erasmus's books represented. 5% of all the books that were for sale in Europe. Wow. Someone did that calculation. And, and uh, it's quite extraordinary when you just see the, just the, you know, so they got printed in Basel, but someone in Cologne would immediately do a copy of the book. And then someone in Paris would do one. Mm -hmm. And uh, so no copyright laws back then uh, of right. the same way that we have now. They did have some protection, but not much. And so people would be printing these things like crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so they were super popular. And I think what drew people to it was the idea that you could have a critical analysis of, of how a prince ought to be taught. And it's an old tradition. There's something called the mirror of princes in the Middle Ages, where people are, you know, they talk about the best behavior for a prince and so on. And, uh, uh, but he does it very much with a, a classical orientation, uh, relying on uh, what I would call a sort of classical ethics, and then also very much a Christian notion of in his case, that meant community, uh, the words of uh, Jesus, uh, like taken very, very much at source, and uh, generosity, charity was very important. And these things were uh, sort of trying to redefine the notion of what, uh, uh, how a prince might seem. And so he was very critical of princes who just like to dance and go hunting, <laughs> which unfortunately was Charles. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, the other people around the, the monarch and other humanist readers of the time, people who've been educated in this, and it was a powerful uh, elite that went right across Europe, were interested in this kind of, uh, of a higher claim for what the prince should be doing. And also very uh, a lot of people very reluctant to go to war because w there was a lot of war at the time. And, um, and of course, like, you know, you look at the First World War, everyone was related, mm -hmm. the monarchs and people like that who got involved in that. Well, it was the same thing back in the early 16th century. They were all cousins or in-laws and all that and uh, related in one way or another, sometimes distantly, sometimes close up. And they were squabbling over territory in Italy over, you know, in France, north of France, the English felt they had a claim there, uh, in Germany, uh, borders and things like that. And then at the same time, there's a great threat of the Turks coming in from uh, towards Vienna in the late 20s, uh, 1520s. So it was a very, there's a period full of turmoil. Mm. And uh, so there you've got someone recommending, can we just stop the war? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a uh, uh, very popular notion to people who were, you know, living a more ordinary life than the people who were, uh, served to gain from this kind of warfare. So as the title says, it, it does talk about how a prince should be educated, but he also talks about how the prince should exercise his power. What are some of the main points that Erasmus says about how a prince should be educated and how a prince should exercise his power? Well, the, the, uh, I guess the main thing there is the, um, I mean, he does start off with the birth and upbringing of a prince, uh, but then he's very concerned about who is around the prince and advising him. So flatterers are there, uh, you know, every leader has the uh, people who are constantly nodding and telling, and, and, you know, we've had a fairly recent example of, of a presidential situation where there, there are flatterers and then they get fired. Right. Uh, right. And because uh, uh, they, maybe they stop for a moment fl right. giving flattery, I don't right. know what it is, or the wrong advice. Uh, but he focuses more on things like arts of peace. And, uh, and is very critical of the way revenue and taxation are being exercised, not necessarily by the prince uh, himself, 
or the leader, because some of the, 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 there were uh, uh, leaders who were women at the time too. So Mary of Hungary and Margaret of Austria, um, they had basically tax collectors and it was ruinous for the common person sometimes, the amount of stuff that you were, was being picked over. And emphasizing the notion that the prince should be generous and thoughtful of the people. And his, his model was really a kind of, you know, paternalistic for sure, because it really was the father of the country that he was looking at and describing. But someone who was kind to the children, generous and so on. And, um, but he's also interested in what the magistrates are doing, as well as the tax collectors and the, uh, the, I, the, the role of treaties which are often uh, these things which basically are marriage arrangements. And, um, uh, and the, the role of the prince, how the prince should behave in peacetime, not just in, in a time of war. So that, that's the real emphasis in, in the book fair. How, how is his uh, vision of education and leadership different from how leaders are trained today? For example, in business school, you go and you get an MBA and if you focus on leadership or, you know, even in the education world, you can go and get a doctorate in, in sort of higher education, administration, leadership. Uh, how, how does he think about or talk about uh, education and leadership different than what in the 21st century, most people are trained to do or think about? I think the, there, the key thing is the kind of ethical frame for the discussion. Uh, so we're in a, a period where uh, I would say the, uh, ethical norms are um, there are a lot of contradictions that go on in, in even among scholars who are talking about things. So uh, I know certainly in the in a department of English, you can have all kinds of ideas of what an ethical behavior is. Uh, you know, either purely circumstantial or tied to some kind of doctrine, and or you may have competing doctrines, and then you have a kind of uh, postmodern idea that uh, any kind of truth is really subject to or it's circumstantial and it's uh, tied to this kind of thing i he was really trying to tie it to a, a, a kind of clear notion of an ethical behavior that he got from uh really a kind of a survey of ancient writers and it was his own concoction really because you can find quite a mix of things at the time but uh, it's really a kind of Ciceronian idea of the uh, of of a um, of a leader or a ruler who is well educated, aware of things around uh, him, uh, able to take advice from other educated people, uh, able to dispute and argue over things and try to come to a state of clarity, which you get in philosophy, and. Um, uh, and I find that the emphasis now is more on technical skills. So if you take ethics, you may end up finding out, well, this will be called unethical behavior if you do X, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than is it really ethical or not? Mm -hmm. um, because people are helping uh, people work through a kind of maze of restrictions or challenges that can come to their to their leadership uh, if they're you know, working in a, in a business or something like that. And, and often very surprising things that will crop up in, in our own situation. And so he's trying to tie that to something that is, is um, uh, what he calls the philosophy of Christ, really. And uh, trying to get people to see, is this charitable? Is this action, does this action lead to the good? For all, not for my business, not for um, you know, my short-term, uh, you know, maintenance of my borders or something, but will this provide um, security for people, for the ordinary person? And uh, so in, in that kind of sense is a, is a kind of lingering democratic sense in there. And I, interestingly too, this is also something you find in Machiavelli. And it's a, it's a point that they actually have in common, that they're interested in the people. Machiavelli was a real Republican. And I think that Erasmus, if, if you really pursued it, would probably have sort of gone that route too. But he was mm -hmm. in total allegiance to or dependent on patrons for his um, mm -hmm. uh, survival, really. Uh, either protection from his enemies and also for money to survive. So, uh, so it, it's, there's a complication in there with that. But I think that it, it, that's the thing that seems different to me. It's, it's as though 
if you were going to do teach a business course on it, you wouldn't be reading uh, a textbook on ethics. You'd actually be reading the Bible. Mm. Uh, <laughs> kind of a different approach, I'd right. say. Yeah, and, uh, I, I'd say it's a pretty pretty huge difference, uh, the emphasis on ethics. I've often wondered, and I doubt these statistics exist, but I've often sort of wondered if you think about the Fortune 500 companies today, you know, how many lawyers work for those companies? I mean, thousands, um, but how many ethicists or moral theologians work for those companies? I would be shocked if it's more than 10. So it's obviously business is interested in asking the question, you know, what is legal as opposed to what is, what is good? Um, yes, so the, I, good, the good will be determined for the lawyer. The good will be determined by what the legal position is. Exactly. And, and, uh, and so we're looking for something a little uh, broader than that because we might see the law, as certainly Erasmus did, as something that is being kind of created as you move along and as often benefits uh, as he would say, mostly the lawyers, and uh, uh, but also the, the the monarch may create laws or put into effect laws or regulations that will benefit the monarch and not the people. And so he's really interested in how do we how do we spread the good around? Mm -hmm. And uh, so it would be like in a, uh, a large company today, if someone were to say, uh, yes, we want to be, do good for our customers. But we also want to do good for people who might become our customers or right. you know, a much broader sense of who this might be. Hmm. And so we're going to, we're not going to squeeze every penny we can out of this, even though we know we've got, uh, we'll have to explain to our, to our shareholders why we're not doing that. Right. Uh, so there's a real pressure, on, I think, on people in business. And uh, I do think that the, uh, even though the structure of business is not like this, I do think that in my encounter with many people, in fact, most members of my family who are in business, um, there is, a, there is a, a, a desire to do, to do the right thing, to, do, to behave well. And, uh, but then you're kind of trapped in the necessity to hit a certain target or to do something. And suddenly, you know, as my daughter had to do, she was manager, you know, small business, but she had to lay off 60 people in one night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in COVID. And, uh, and so her concern was, am I doing it the right way? Mm -hmm. You know, have I contacted people in an appropriate way? Right. You know, so at least it shows that we're, we care about them. Because mm -hmm. uh, we may have to hire them back as one thought in the back of her mind. Well, right, right. But, uh, but, you know, it's not, it's not, I, I don't think a lot of people are like entirely cutthroat about it. There are definitely people, and they've been called sociopaths and other things. But uh, <laughs> But there are, but there are a lot of people I think who are just trying to do a good job. But they're they're kind of in a trap there, you know. Um, you know, something that they sold one day is uh, for X is now going to cost them X plus Y to to purchase themselves before they even resell it. So now it's X plus Y plus Z, mm -hmm. which we're looking at. And uh, so the whole thing is, uh, I, I think, is very difficult for people who are who are you know, maybe morally trying to do the moral right thing, but are, are caught within certain kinds of boundaries. Erasmus was writing in a different historical moment in the 16th century. Uh, at the time, most political leaders were kings or queens or princes. Western civilization today is primarily populated with republics. Uh, does his vision of leadership have anything to offer to those who are democratically elected or would his text only speak to somebody who doesn't have to worry about the next election cycle? Well, strangely, some of the people were elected back then, like Charles V was elected emperor, even though mm -hmm. he was already the king of, what was it, Duke of Burgundy, king of Spain by then. But, um, and there were, there were Republica, Republicas, uh, republics around. Sure. But um, uh, I think that the, the idea of, of the social order is the thing that concerns him. And so whether it's a uh, inherited prince, which would be of great concern for the early years and for the way that that person is trained, um, is different from, uh, from what we have now. Uh, the, I guess you would say that the, uh, his notion of education is really quite a universal no notion. That is, all 
children should be getting the same kind of ethical and training in letters and so on. And in fact, that is sort of what happened with the impact of his education, because by the end of the century, the schooling had just shot up in many countries across Europe. It was partly a Protestant thing, but it was also, they're all using an Erasmian scheme, like Jesuits and, uh, you know, Jesuits in, in Spain and uh, uh, Protestants in Germany were all using an, kind of basically an Erasmian curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it really stuck right through the to the end of the 18th century, the idea of uh, mastery of classical literature and so on, the same kind of texts and study and so on, often even said the same grammar books that were being used. Uh, so uh, it was a it was a fairly broad sense. So I think the king is only the monarch is is special only in the fact that the monarch is is being brought up in a very unusual situation and as Erasmus says in the uh, education of Christian Prince educate him when he doesn't know as for as much as you can during the period when he doesn't realize he's a prince mm. <laughs> you know so right. pretty young pretty young and, yeah. and keep him away from the notion that he can do whatever he wants to do uh, because as they get older they begin the flatterers attend to them the notion that they can actually do whatever they want to do I mean, this certainly afflicted uh, Charles V. Uh, as a uh, as a child, he began to become quite headstrong and unruly, and uh, and you read about it with other monarchs too. That once they they sort of caught the idea that they can do what they want, they begin to do that. And you know, like you look at uh, Francis the First, uh, contemporary, uh, heads off to Italy. He's like barely twenty years old, and he's decided he's going to regain all the lost territories that France should own in, in Italy, you know, having inherited this, this task from his grandfather. And uh, uh, so you've got, you've got this kind of thing where they're, once they realize that they are in charge, uh, they, they get out of control. And you might say the same thing happens to people when they get into office in our own time, that people begin to feel that they have uh, special rights, special privileges, they can they can insist on things being done. And in fact, people expect them to take on that role of, you know, doing things, making things happen. And in uh, back then, it was warfare and uh, uh, and largesse, showing off your wealth and so on. Today, it would be, you know, uh, your ability to double the size of the business or something like that by crushing a few of your uh, competitors. Right. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope, because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. think Erasmus has to offer our culture today about education and leadership that we might be able to adopt, uh, even to someone who doesn't come from a Catholic perspective as he does? Um, or do you think this text is so grounded in a Christian ethical perspective that, you know, it could be taught in a Catholic school, but in a sort of secular MBA program or PhD program in education, it, it just wouldn't fit? Does, does he have anything uh, to offer us today? Well, I think the one thing I learned uh, and coming from the kind of direction you're talking about mm-hmm. is that in the humanities and in so much of what we do, there is a spiritual dimension 
Now, whether you're going to call it Christian or whatever you're going to name it, it's, there is this aspect of things. There is something so complex and so large that we have to take that into consideration, uh, that, that such things exist even. And in uh, Erasmus's situation, it was the, you know, really the words of Jesus, which reminded one of, uh, of a kind of higher, uh, more difficult uh, kind of ethical position to take on things, but things which one should be called to, uh, kind of clarity about uh, moral issues, which are often just, you know, very circumstantial the way we deal with them. And so, no, I, I'm, uh, I've really come to see the, that what he offers is, is a notion of the humanities and of reading mm -hmm. and of interpreting, which requires one to come to the text with this kind of broader sense. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, what are you going to tie your ethical considerations to? Right. I mean, you know, like it's just doesn't just come out of the air. And so what, what, what are you going to use? There, there may not be fixed ideals, but there's a notion of something that's much larger. Mm. And uh, that to me is the uh, great value of uh, going back and reading a, you know, a figure like Erasmus who was entirely committed to this notion of the humanities. So it was really you know, humanism, but humanism that is based on the relationship of the human to the divine and to uh, a spiritual life and to a deeper understanding and to a sense of interiority that each person has inside themselves something that needs to be developed or discovered and attended to and so to me as an educator that's that's a big thing uh and uh sure uh and i think with erasmus you're you're very aware of that because he never lets it go and so you know he's got the little book on uh, for instance how children should behave, you know, like mm. do not pick your nose in public, and, nice. uh, you know, do not fart during dinner and things like that. Right. Very specific directions. Yeah. But in the end, what it's tied to is a notion of civility and relationship to others. And then to a much larger thing, which is the, the idea of uh, kind of generosity and charity towards others. And uh, that's the kind of thing that I find that uh, uh, is... Uh, we get tied up in our specific debates and things like that in an academic environment or in schools and so on. But there is this other feature there. And I think that is something that is, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a richness, which we could learn something from. You had mentioned earlier Machiavelli's The Prince, which is certainly a better known text, not only within the academic world, but it's um, sort of circulating in popular culture now. They deal with a lot of the same issues. I think Machiavelli is less interested in the educational question, but they're both talking about the exercise of power. Uh, how uh, is Machiavelli's The Prince and uh, Erasmus's The Education of a Christian Prince, how are they similar and, and how are they different? Yeah, okay. That's, that's a very interesting thing. I actually deal with it, unfortunately, only in one paragraph in my book. Okay. It's, it's a, one of many, many things you could talk about. But sure. they're, they're written almost at exactly the same time. With And there's a big difference between the two writers. Machiavelli, I, well, there's a lot of similarities too. Very well educated, both of them, right? But Machiavelli is a practitioner and uh, worked as a highly placed official in the Florentine government uh, when he wrote his book, he had been exiled, and suddenly he's trying to get himself back into play, as it were. And um, uh, he is, um, uh, Rasmus, on the other hand, is much more a kind of theoretician, much more an educator. So he's focusing on the education, and uh, hence the title. And Machiavelli is really looking at the prince after the prince has become a prince. And the, and the interesting thing is there's a lot of arguments over this book. And one of them is that perhaps what we have is a entirely distorted notion uh, of what a prince is. That is, these are, these are the real things that make a prince successful. Crush, destroy, win. And, and yet it's well known that uh, Machiavelli is a Republican, not a you know, believer in, in inherited... Uh, uh, monarchy and so on, and uh, so you've got it. You've got them both going in, in what look like slightly different directions, but I think they're both 
you know, I mentioned earlier, Machiavelli and, and Erasmus are both interested in the, the welfare of the people. And, uh, and Machiavelli is very clear, do not lose the people mm-hmm. or you will be lost yourself. You will, you will be, you can, you can, uh, you can uh, be tough on them. You can be feared, but he says, you know, you must, you make himself feared in such a way that he will avoid hatred, even if he does not acquire love, because you can be very easily feared and yet not hated. So that's the thing. Don't get, don't get them hating you. <laughs> and, uh, and as he says, you can, you can do certain things. Uh, one of his examples is uh, you can kill somebody's father, but do not take their property. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a very specific piece of advice. Right. Because they will forget about their father over time, but they will not forget about the piece of property you took away from them. Mm. And it's a very you know, cynical view right. of how people get on. But the point is, he may have observed this, and this may be a, a kind of doctrine that he's able to set down because it's actually true. And the and so the prince is going to be learning all of these kinds of tricks and you know schemes that that he sets down. Uh, but in the end, uh, is is Machiavelli really? Does he think a prince is the best way for a state to be run? And the answer is, well, wait till his next book. <laughs> <laughs> commentary on Livy and you'll find out that it isn't right it's a republic that we want and in fact why he gets involved in all this stuff is really because he is completely devoted to the idea of an Italian republic uh that you know and protecting Italy from all these foreign invaders uh so uh uh and and so you know and yet you know just following up the same example you know the prince however with his army he should be cruel because that's they understand that you know, he can get away with being cruel to them. They, not only do they, they, all they have to do is fear him. They can even hate him, but he, but he has to control the army, but not so with the people. So it's an interesting uh, difference. And, uh, and he concentrates on these, uh, on the, the moment of when an action has to happen. For instance, you need ability, ingenuity, and skill, which is what he calls virtu, or you have to have this, there is this moment that comes, the occasione, which you, uh, the moment of opportunity, and you, you recognize that because of the skill that you have. And also, a really good leader, and actually I believe this even during my short term as a, as a short time as a president of a small university, is you need fortuna, which is, it's more than good luck, it's kind of the favor of the gods. Right. And so, you know, I look back on my time, I had a a blessed time we had great enrollments we had this we had that uh two years later people lost interest in the humanities which is ours my my small university was run and suddenly gone but for me fortuna had been smiling Hmm. and uh so uh i look on this as there's some truth to this some people actually have that thing that is given to them for reasons that are completely mysterious i'm not sure i had the beer too but anyway uh but uh the idea then is to, in, 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 um, uh, for Machiavelli, is the idea of glory, of the, of the uh, uh, and his great example is Cesare Borgia, but, you know, footnote to Cesare Borgia, killed in a skirmish at the age of 32. Mm. So a marvelous prince, uh, example of how to do all of these prince-like things, but not a marvelous human being, mm. and, and not necessarily a consequential one in the end. And so... Uh, I, I'm, I feel as sort of the jury is a bit out on Machiavelli. It's a very complicated <laughs> book. And uh, whereas Erasmus is much more kind of straight up. I mean, I think he really does want to see a really well-behaved prince. <laughs> and uh, uh, if you're going to have princes, you want them, and the prince should be attending to the people just the way a modern elected official should be attending to the people. Mm-hmm. You need the people to support you. You had mentioned how widely... Uh, read Erasmus was you'd mentioned five percent of books at the time uh, were that were published came from him but of course I think it's easy to say today that Machiavelli is is much better known I think most people have never heard of uh, Erasmus's text the education of a prince why do you think Machiavelli is so much uh, better known or, or or read than Erasmus's text is it just that Machiavelli has this sort of um 
spicy scandal uh, scandalous flavor to his text or is there some other reason that you think that maybe Erasmus isn't uh, read as as widely I, I think it's it, there's a, there's a shock element for sure yeah right um and uh it does make it super readable uh also he's got many many instances of actual lived events even if sometimes he kind of you know enhances them uh, so it's as a piece of short piece of writing. Also, it's in the vernacular, mm. and uh, you know, Erasmus. Uh, that was really about the end of uh, people doing a lot of writing in Latin. I mean, there's a huge amount of scholarly writing that came after that, but most of the great works in in European literature were uh, in vernacular languages, and uh, something that uh, Luther certainly understood. Right, and. Uh, uh, and so I think that um, uh, there is a, a kind of a clarity and an alertness in Machiavelli to circumstance, you know, the, the actual moments in which things are happening. He's very attached to this occasione thing where you, you know, there's a particular moment and the skilled leader will take advantage of it. There's none of that in, in Erasmus. And, and that's because I think uh, Machiavelli was up close observing uh, the leaders in the time. You know, Julius II was a kind of admirable person to him in some ways in the way he was able to move and act swiftly. And to Erasmus, Julius II was a subject of, you know, was someone who couldn't make it into heaven, uh, you know, because there's uh, this famous dialogue he wrote, which he never admitted he wrote, um, of a description of Julius II knocking on heaven's door after he died trying to get in and St. Peter not allowing him in mm. and sending him to the other place where he really belonged. And uh, so uh, there's that kind of uh, uh, sense in, in uh, Machiavelli of the immediacy of the, uh, of the occasion of the moment. And uh, that to me is a powerful thing uh, for a reader. And it's also something you can take over that way of, of, of observing the moment and then applying it to a situation you might be in to try and figure out what's really going on here. So I, I, I think that there's, um, as a book of statecraft and of uh, understanding politics, Machiavelli is far superior. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't mind conceding that. However, um, I think as an educator, which is really what Erasmus was up to, Erasmus was, was uh, even more effective than Machiavelli because mm -hmm. Really, you have a school system for 300 years that depended on an Erasmian notion of what an educated person is. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also the, the uh, you know, what we've seen in a shift, uh, this is something I like to talk about with my colleagues in humanities and so on, is we've seen a real shift in the idea, you know, in the, let's say the 1950s, 60s, around then, there was a kind of educated elite that also was the elite that managed society. Sure. And, you know, for good or ill, um, uh, they could speak to the, one another, not just in their own countries, but they could speak internationally to one another. They'd had the same kind of education. They had the same reverence for, for certain things of the past. Um, and that was in a process of, you know, melting, I would say, by the middle of the last century, by the 1950s and so on. Mm -hmm. And it had really, by this time, it is reached what I would say is a marginal position. So the kind of thing you and I are talking about are now, it's now quite marginal to the way things are actually done, but it's still a powerful margin. You know, there's a lot of people talk, who talk and think about this, but it has shifted out of the center so that you no longer have people who have like shared uh, kind of sense of belief, maybe shared religion, uh, shared kind of family upbringing, all this kind of stuff. Uh, there, there's been a kind of a, just a radical movement of globalization, of class shift, and all of that. And we're in the midst of uh, quite an amazing period of, of transition. Yeah. And I think it easily matches things that people were seeing in the Reformation mm -hmm. in terms of confusion and uh, lack of clarity about where we're going and so on. And then people latching on to specific religious sects or religious ideas and hanging on to them. Uh, and um, uh, with the great difference is that the leaders in across different countries are not related to each other. However, 
it is a weird phenomenon that inside countries like the US, you're getting people from the same family and in my own country in Canada, you know, Trudeau, Trudeau, or in the States, uh, Clinton, Clinton, or Bush, Bush. Uh, We still believe in this kind of weird inherited thing that is sort of residual in the culture. Erasmus, as you'd sort of mentioned earlier, probably best known for his his Greek New Testament, also his satirical praise of folly, which unfortunately, for the sake of time, we just didn't have time to talk about. Um, how do you see the education of a Christian prince fitting within the, the context of the rest of his Erasmus's writings? Uh, is it sort of an outlier, like this strange project that he took on, or does it fit within a sort of cohesive way that Erasmus thought about his own body of work? Yeah, no, I think that the, uh, it certainly is cohesive for a particular time. I, I think it really from the uh, around 1515 when he was around, uh, just around when he was turning uh, 50, um, uh, he was now sort of more tied to the state. He was, a, he was made a counselor for Charles V. Um, and he was begin to be consulted by people, especially people who were thrown by the, by the Reformation and seeking guidance. He was there to provide that to them. So that this, this whole project of the Christian prince is really part of a, so, a commitment to a kind of social ideal that he has, which is apparent even in the earlier books like the Enchiridion, which is really about, not just about an internal reformation, but a re- reformation in relation to others. He's very social in terms of his idea of how we should behave and how we should think. And in fact, that was something that uh, Luther, uh, you know, criticized him for. And I thought Luther was spot on with that observation. He's he's a very social being. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the other book, which I think people should know about, in part because I edited a whole collection of these things, (laughs) uh, is this book of Proverbs uh, called The Adages. And... um, they're kind of typical things that we know, like in vino veritas and, and uh, or make haste slowly, like festina lente and things like that. And uh, but he did he wrote essays about thousands of these. And some of them he wrote in 1515, which were all political. And the, probably the most famous of them is the one called Dulce Bellum Inexpertis. War is sweet for those who have not tried it. Mm. And this is a complete out attack on the carelessness by which people are willing to go to war, to fight over things, uh, to um, uh, create total havoc in uh, society, and uh, and that was that kept being read for decades, you know, for right through, published separately out of this big collection of proverb essays, uh, right up until um, I guess the 19th century is regularly republished in translated, translated in all kinds of languages. And so this is, that to me is if you wanted to read something by Erasmus, it really hits home mm-hmm. in a way that, um, uh, in the way that the Praise of Folly does or in his other uh, things called the Colloquies, which are a group of little, they're meant to be language instruction, uh, things like the kind of thing you do in a French class, learn, learn dialogues with one another, but they're all written as critiques of social behavior and of the way people live. These things are all part of a commitment he has to what you would call a public intellectual. Mm-hmm. That is he, is, he is someone who is like fully committed to trying to bring the idea of the Bible and to the New Testament specifically and to ancient ethics into the public life and into a currency. And that's kind of stuff that a lot of people are still trying to do. And I guess that's what you're trying to do too in, in right. your uh, pro- podcast. Yeah. So it's a, it's a valuable thing to do, you know, mm-hmm. keep reminding people of, of what's going on. And uh, sooner or later, they'll all come back to the humanities. I'm not too worried. Uh, how can they not? Uh, but what we've yeah. got is a, a situation in where we're, we've become more interested in technical solutions for things uh, meanwhile, you know, as we're doing these technical things, we're faced with all kinds of ethical questions about, you know, who gets what and at, at what time and, you know, who gets vaccinated and who doesn't and where in the world. Now we're thinking more globally about these things. So it's. Well, uh, I hope you're right that um, that, that, that 
people will come back to the humanities. Uh, you might be a bit more optimistic than I am, um, but uh, hopefully you're right. Well, we've seen um, we've seen it swing quite often, you know, over yeah. the over the your ages, you know, and and also people are getting it through other sources, true, through you know, through a lot of uh, performance arts and things like that. that we have through even through TV and so on. There's a lot of ethical material mm -hmm. that is really of that, you know, just the way Shakespeare's plays serve that up to people and often served Erasmian ideas up to people. Mm. We're getting the same kind of thing in, in uh, popular arts too, music and so on. So, uh, Two final questions. Um, you've spent many years studying Erasmus, writing on Erasmus. What is it about him that, that catches and keeps your attention? <laughs> uh, and number two, uh, give us a flavor about what your upcoming book, uh, which again is coming out uh, this fall, uh, and is titled Erasmus of Rotterdam, The Spirit of a Scholar. Tell us uh, what that book is going to be about. Okay, well, I'll start with how I got into this. I was a grad student, and my supervisor was the editor of the, of, uh, the Collected Works of Erasmus, uh, which was a, intended to be uh, an 86-volume uh, translation of almost all of Erasmus's writings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm now on the editorial board of that, and we're, we have 15 volumes to go. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, it is a massive amount of stuff that he wrote. And so it's an introduction to a whole age and to a whole way of thinking that, uh, uh, and I, I didn't think I was going to get interested. I was really an English prof, and I shouldn't be fiddling around with this Latin stuff. It's going to get right. me in trouble. But uh, I do find that the... Uh, it, it sort of lies behind the kind of work that happens what we're doing in literary studies and so on. And, and, uh, and the idea of this sort of intellectual, uh, uh, public intellectual work that he did and, and all that is very important. And also the notion of this kind of interiority that he is, uh, faces all the time when he talks about language and interpretation and so on. So that's attracted me all along. And the book is really a fairly straightforward account of uh, what they call cradle to grave. And uh, uh, what I've tried to do is give people uh, a, a full account, is necessarily quite abbreviated actually, because it's you know a relatively short book for Erasmus. I mean, the biography that should be coming out now should be probably in you know, multi-volume biography because there's so much uh, scholarship that's been done mm -hmm. and that can be built into something that would create a quite an interesting narrative uh, and just as 21 volumes of correspondence are just mind-blowing in the detail and insight they give you into all kinds of aspects of the age like you know uh, cures for the gout and for what happens when you get uh, <laughs> Erasmus got the plague and he survived it mm -hmm. his account is hair-raising and uh, um uh, and how people moved about and how the, how people corresponded with each other and so on. So it's absolutely fascinating uh, subject to get into. And because it's all been translated, it's now possible for, for your listeners uh, really to go and encounter it themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so my book is really a kind of based on the, the more recent scholarship that's come out, tried to sort of bring things. I mean, for instance, the birth date of Erasmus was always said to be 1469. And I'm quite convinced it's 1466. Mm -hmm. uh, so people could start with that and chew that one over. Sure. Um, but it's um, uh, because there's all kinds of proof for these things that people have really dug into. So there's a really a, quite a large group of scholars that are still working on him or, or come into him from the side. You know, the way that, uh, for instance, you, you and your interests might, you know, uh, what happened to Pelagianism in the uh, 16th century? Well, Erasmus right. is right central to that topic. And so th these things are all part of the um, um, of a bigger picture. And I, I quite frankly, I'm, I find I'm, I I'm easily overwhelmed by the size of it all. But sure. uh, I keep being drawn to it. And partly it's because I, I keep saying yes to at requests like yours <laughs> to say something and so well, the book was sort of a request to the publisher and, and mm -hmm. I had no I sort of thought it would be an interesting thing to do but I didn't realize how bad how hard it was going to be because right. there's so much to look at but anyway for people who are you know contemporary people now uh you know it's odd to think of a scholar as being a, an exciting person except that 
so much of what we do is through the intellectual life and just sitting in front of a computer, you know, like really, mm. when you come to tell some people's biography, they're going to say, uh, you know, the, the only days he worked, he was, he stopped, uh, it wasn't working, uh, you know, or the, he was always in front of a computer. <laughs> and so, um, and just paying attention to the, the refinement. So for modern scholarship is an interesting figure to look at because he really set the, uh, set a direction for that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Barker, for, uh, for joining me in this conversation it was wonderful. It's certainly, uh, I recommend everybody uh, get your book when it comes out. The text itself, Erasmus, the Education of a Prince, published uh, several years ago from Cambridge Text. Um, get a copy of that used online as well. Uh, I'm certainly going to go get the, the text that you'd mentioned about uh, Erasmus wrote on war. I hadn't read that. Um, so I'm going to check that out. So the easiest, the easiest way to get that, I hate to, to recommend one of my own books, but there's oh, something no, no, no. The Adages of Erasmus. Okay. Uh, it's in paperback. Sure. And uh, you can probably buy it secondhand or uh, new, uh, if you wish, from wherever. But uh, it's still in print. It's been uh, it's been out for twenty years now, and uh, uh, it keeps getting reprinted. I think people use it as a textbook sometimes. And uh, so um, that has all of the adages in it. They're quite fascinating, and for anyone who likes language and for the way words are used over time and the way they've been imported from antiquity into modern because Erasmus was a major uh, kind of conduit for uh, a lot of the ancient expressions that we have uh, that have somehow worked their way into English. And so things like breaking ice or show someone a middle finger, those are all like from, uh, they're all from antiquity and Erasmus revived them and got them back into action. So mm. Um, that, that that kind of uh, thing is interesting, and so uh, that's in the that's in and the the war sweet uh, essay is in there, along with the all the other ones, which is super critical of the powers that be. Well, Dr. Barker, uh, once again, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope, because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.